Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast begins a special one-week, five-part series on the Monaco Memo. It's one of the most significant memos around the Department of Justice's thoughts on best practices, compliance, and actions you need to take during and after an enforcement action. Today, we have James Kukios, who's going to talk to us about his thoughts on the Monaco Memo. On Tuesday, we'll have Vin DeCiani. On Wednesday, my radical compliance co-host, Matt Kelly, joins me to take a deep dive into the weeds of the Monaco Memo. On Thursday, Hughes Hubbard partner, Laura Perkins, will visit with us. And we're going to conclude the week back again with Matt Kelly on the polite speech on the memo. In this episode, I'm joined by my radical compliance co-host, Matt Kelly. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Susanna Hammond. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox and Matt Kelly back again for another episode. And today we're going to take a look at the Lisa Monaco memo or the Monaco memo. So, Matt, first of all, welcome back. Hello, Tom. Good to be here. We certainly have a lot to talk about. That we do. Matt, do you want to start off with maybe some 30,000 foot views of your thoughts on this memo before we take a deep dive into it? Sure. I think, number one, this should not be a surprise at the 30,000 foot level. Although once we zoom into a lower altitude, maybe some parts will be surprising. But let's remember that Deputy Attorney General Monaco basically told us a year ago that she was going to do all of this. And here we have it done. So nobody who has been paying attention should be surprised at the broad contours of this. More focus or more desire to focus on individual wrongdoers rather than corporations, more reticence to allow recidivist corporate offenders and maybe frowning on DPAs or not or NPAs for repeat offenses, big emphasis on self-disclosure, big emphasis on turning over documents in a timely fashion. All of that, tell me something I wasn't expecting. The details of it could be a bit interesting. We can talk about that, but I don't think we should be surprised by any of where this memo is going. It's been telegraphed to us for a while. And uh, already, as we talked about last week, we see some of the subordinates for Deputy AG Monaco starting to fill in the specifics. But I think it's okay. I think it's reasonable enough, given where the Biden administration is saying it will be going on anti-corruption, 
generally more vigorous enforcement against corporate crime under Democratic administrations. None of this is really surprising. And in some ways, it can actually be quite reasonable. So here we are. So two thoughts I would like to throw out, Matt. First of all, this memo comes seven years after the date of the Yates memo. Yep. So I thought that was interesting that September 15, 2015 was when the Yates memo was released. And that forms some part of the basis of this, I think. But the second thing is, put and once again, putting together with certainly the polite speech that we talked about in our prior podcast, I see this of the carrot and stick approach getting a bit more weight on this one as opposed to the carrot. It seemed to me that the department was putting more or greater obligations on companies. You mentioned disclosure of information. I'm sure we'll take a deeper dive into that. The corporate compliance programs and the remediation. And then for me, perhaps the most interesting part was the discussion around monitorships and not so much the philosophy of whether monitors would be used, could be used, or how would they be used, but actually the factors that Department of Justice prosecutors are to evaluate when deciding whether or not to assign a monitor. And I thought that was a a large amount of detailed information, frankly, similar to the first evaluation of corporate compliance programs released by Andrew Wiseman or when Andrew Wiseman was the head of the fraud section back in early 2017 as well. A lot here to unpack. You perhaps want to start with the requirement that companies have to, quote, timely, end quote, without defining timely, turn over information of culpable individuals and what that might mean for corporations. That is something that I had caught my eyes. I was reading the memo in advance of this podcast that, okay, so clearly turning over all evidence related to individual wrongdoers. That was in the Yates memo. Again, not breathtaking news that they're going to restate that. But now the emphasis on and do it quickly, do it in a timely way. I don't know exactly what timely would mean. I don't am not clear on if they're going to provide more specific guidance and explanation of what timely is. But I thought it actually would maybe lead compliance officers and legal officers to think through what are procedures going to be able to think through disclosure. Clearly, if the department is saying, do it fast, folks, we're looking for time, then you should have a some sort of established procedure for evaluating what would we be doing here. I don't think that making those decisions on the fly with no procedure at all is going to be wise. The Monaco memo talks about unnecessary delays that might implicate, say, the statute of limitations. So how would your company develop a procedure to review all this data in a prompt format? Are there going to be questions about your e-discovery capabilities that you can analyze all of this information, find out what is or isn't relevant, or putting litigation holds on your your employees and then being able to go through all of that? Eventually, you will have a big pile of And then comes the decision, when do we disclose this? How do we disclose this? If we have 20 records that we already know are going to be relevant, but we have a thousand more we haven't indexed yet. Do we turn over the 20 right now and we get to the other thousands next week, next month? I think that it will behoove companies to have solid policies and procedures and a thought process here about how to do that in a disciplined way 
regardless of any specific incident that might come up. Because like I said, if you have to make these processes and procedures on the fly with DOJ already breathing down your neck, I do not think that is a good position. But that was one thing that jumped out at me right away. That's an excellent point, Matt. And I've been thinking about that also in terms of your internal reporting protocol. You and I have both talked about certainly whistleblowing. We've talked about speak up. We've talked about a culture of speak up. And I wonder how all of that is going to work into that whole process, because when the report comes in, first of all, you have to get the report. Second of all, you have to triage it. Then you have to send it to the right person. Then you actually have to action the report in the form of an investigation. If it's serious enough, do you pick up the phone and call your white-collar defense lawyer? Do you call your regular outside counsel? All of that process takes time. If it's FCPA matter outside the U.S., you may need to fly and interview people overseas. And, of course, you mentioned the what you have to go through to lock the documents down and then review the documents. All of that takes some time. Companies, I hope, have started already to put that process in simply around their whistleblowing hotline reporting so that they could answer questions if the SEC comes knocking because of an SEC whistleblower. But here you've got the decision that you correctly articulated. Do we self-disclose? Do we self-disclose now without knowing what our remediation strategy is? Do we self-disclose now without having performed a root cause analysis? Do we self-disclose now when there may be others that this self-disclosure would alert or somehow impinge our investigation going forward? And do we self-disclose now when we still don't know what we don't know? I recognize those are questions that can be worked out, but For me, it does raise a lot of questions about things that were done perhaps in a more measured approach going forward. One thought that pops in my head as I'm listening, Tom, is we always talk about a speak up culture. I think this issue that Deputy AG Monaco raises is more like a speak out issue or culture that senior management has to embrace, that when you have something here, you're going to have to report it. I, As I was thinking about this, I did think a couple of years ago now, the Cognizant Technologies FCPA enforcement issue, where uh, that was some pretty egregious misconduct that uh, the president and the general counsel of the company were implicated, and it was a large and bribe that was being paid over in India. And in that case, The board, when they became aware of it, they disclosed that matter to justice, I think, within about two weeks. They clearly, at that point, would have no idea where this was going to go, but they knew we got to get this out. doesn't matter what's going to happen at the end of the road. If we screw it up at the start and we cover it up or we slow roll it, that's not going to do us any favors. And at the end of the day, Cognizant Technologies got a really good settlement given the nature of of the allegations and the aggravating circumstances. Worth noting that at that time, and I believe still to this day, on the audit committee is an ethics and compliance officer, Leo McKay. And I think that it raises some questions about will the board and senior management, will they really take this to heart and have a speak out culture, even though once you speak it out, you cannot unspeak it to justice and you don't know where it's gonna go. But if we're serious about a culture of compliance at the senior levels, That's what this looks like. It's going to be erring on the side of voluntary self-disclosure and turning over a lot of documents and just letting the cards land where they will. That's an excellent point on the Cognizant Technologies case because it does give us at least one sustainable model that can be used. And you're correct. The resolution for Cognizant Technologies was as good as it gets because they got a full declination with C-suite involvement. 
uh, or alleged involvement in the bribery scheme. There's a couple of other points on this issue, Matt, that I'd like to raise, and it moves to the stick discussion I want to have throughout this podcast today. The burden of proof is on the company to show they were timely. So companies bringing information to the department in a manner that the department deems not timely have to demonstrate that. How do you demonstrate that? I think that means as specific a documentation as you can on your process, which is something we've talked about a lot. But now I want to overlay your outside counsel and their decision-making on the their investigation protocol, not their thought process, not that type of attorney work product, but certainly the decisions they made that were factual in nature to, to try and demonstrate we did this in a timely manner given these facts and circumstances. So I think it's going to put additional pressures on one, your protocol, your speak up, triage, and investigative protocols. And then when you move to the actual investigation, I think you're going to need to document that more because with the burden of proof on the companies to show timeliness, it's going to put more pressure there, point number one. Point number two is they have talked about this issue of timeliness as a part of the evaluation of your cooperation. Now, under the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, you can receive 25% discount even if you don't self-disclose, for cooperation and extensive remediation. Those are somewhat ill-defined, but here we have a metric that the DOJ is going to measure, which is the timeliness of your self-disclosure. So that is a part of the additional discounts you can get under the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Perhaps that's the carrot that we see in this, although, frankly, I see it as a stick as well. You know, I think maybe to flesh out your points a little further or more specifically, I think it probably at a mechanical level underlines the importance of integrating your hotline system and your investigations and case management system. Because if you don't have those well integrated and your timeliness of or promptness of investigation goes wrong, that's not going to look good. Or if you have incomplete documentation. So you can't quite show how timely you were or even something as probably mundane, really, at the intake level of how quickly can you determine that this person giving a report? Are they talking about a policy violation or something that is actually a violation of law, in which case we got to turn this up to 11 and make sure that we know what we're dealing with? So you'd have to think through how would we maybe tweak our intake? And if we're running a hotline call center, can we try and get to that? question and bring it to the surface a little more quickly. How would we do that? How would we do it for bribery? How would we do it for, I don't know, antitrust or something like that? So we will need to revisit probably the soup to nuts of how you report it or get the report, how you triage it, how you investigate it, how you figure out what it is. And like you said, Tom, the more you can document the timeline, the better. But Let's think through what would that actually mean in practice, and there's probably a a lot of stuff compliance officers would want to double-check there to make sure they can do it. Matt, the next section I wanted to go over is entitled Guidance on Corporate Accountability and subtitled Evaluating a Corporation's History of Misconduct. I think this topic was the one that drew the most attention in Lisa Monaco's October 21 uh, speech that the DOJ uh, indicating the DOJ would evaluate a company's overall regulatory and or civil or criminal penalties 
in the context of a corporate culture. You and I certainly talked about it on this podcast. What did it mean? How far would they go back? Would they look at similar or dissimilar cases? And here we have, I thought, some fairly specific guidelines around that question. What did you see in this section that drew your attention? I thought this was kind of, when I said that part of the memo was reasonable, and Tom, you said there's carrot and stick. I thought this was a carrot, carrot-like substance, baby carrots, I don't know. Really, they are saying that, okay, we're not going to nail you to the wall for every single instance of misconduct that has ever befallen the corporation. And that is good. That is sensible. That is reasonable. That they are going to look, I think, more closely at past criminal misconduct versus civil misconduct. If you're in a highly regulated industry, they're going to look at your past infractions compared to other highly regulated industries or peers in your industry, not just look at some broad population as a whole. But they want to try to have a reasoned approach here. And I think that's all good. Now, there are still some questions I have that they want to look at past misconduct and how maybe the company has changed since then. And one thing that they did mention and talked more broadly about the culture of compliance are the managers who might have been involved in incident number one still around when incident number two happened? Okay, that is a subtle pressure that maybe companies will be more quick to dismiss senior level managers who might be on shift when misconduct happens. Uh, I don't know if that would have an effect on the thinking of some boards about do we want to dump this CEO or not in case there's going to be something else that happens in the future. It makes me wonder about the employability of these C-suite people who maybe were on shift when misconduct happened at their company. They have since left. They're looking for new work. Will boards say, I don't want to bring that person in because that might reflect poorly on us? I don't know. Interestingly enough, some compliance officers are wondering if this might make job hopping a more attractive career strategy for them. You don't want to stick around at a company so long that two incidents happen while you are the chief compliance officer. So if something happens, even though it's not your fault, even though you did your best, get out of Dodge so that if something happens the second time, you're not going to be around to hear about it and has the culture changed and all that. And I'm not sure how valid that is yet, but I can see some unintended consequences maybe arising. On the other hand, this is not unreasonable what they're talking about, and holding recidivists more accountable is a good thing. So actually, Matt, I see this point as much stronger and much more stick. I don't see it as a subtle hint. I see it as a almost a direct command, because in the Monaco itself, it says one consideration is whether conduct occurred under the same management team and executive leadership, personnel at any level could indicate the lack of commitment to compliance. But beyond that is, you are there similar root causes? Yep. And then there's a list of other remediation that now I think you, you have to take. And that list includes employee discipline, compensation clawbacks, restitution, management restructuring, compliance programs, up, upgrades. We talked ex extensively about compensation clawbacks in our prior episode but now we've got restitution in there. That indicates there was an injured party and someone needs to be compensated or made whole from your actions. Management restructuring is far beyond simply firing managers who turned the other way or were actively involved, uh, at least to me. And because employee discipline is separate from all of that, I think that you're going to see a lot more 
in terms of terminations or discharges, rather, because of this. And I really saw this as a much more of the stick and, frankly, even closer to not punitive against companies, but punitive in the actions the DOJ wants to take, wants companies to take against recalcitrant employees, managers, and executives. I, I agree with that. I just want to see more detail about what they really mean. So changes in leadership of the management team and executive leadership. Well, There's a big gap between the two of those at some larger companies. And it is not unreasonable for CEOs of very large companies to say, I thought we were having a good compliance program. And I didn't know that this particular unit over here had trouble. Now, are we talking about dumping the department head or the regional manager for that whole geographic unit? Are we talking about dumping the CEO every single time? There's going to be a lot of cases that I think we'll need to have come forward so we can look at the fact patterns there and start to deduce what the company or what the department really means by this. So I'm not entirely clear about all of that. And I don't know. I like I as to the general nature of should we fire people who are committing misconduct? Yes. But how far up the food chain do we go? And Tom, to your point about restitution, that is interesting because I am one of the many who would say bribery, for example, an FCPA violation. Is that a victimless crime? No. But who who would get the check in that instance for restitution? You're going to send that to the general treasury of the country that built its citizens or what? I mean, there might be circumstances where it's clear that somebody somewhere was harmed, but I don't necessarily know that restitution would carry through. So again, like, what do they actually mean in practice? I could see that with, I don't know, contract fixing or something like that. Maybe there's more a more visible third party or harmed party that could receive the restitution. But there's just a lot that it sounds interesting and good in theory, but we'll need an awful lot of practical examples to understand what the best practices really are. Matt, the next area I'd like to take up is in the same general section, but it's entitled or subtitled rather, Evaluation of a Corporation's Compliance Program. And it references the 2019 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs and the 2020 Update. It references the Antitrust Division's Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program and Criminal Investigations. And it, it points to those factors that we have seen emphasized and things that we have talked about over the years. And then there's an intriguing line which says, in addition to those factors, this memorandum identifies additional metrics relevant to the prosecutor's evaluation of a corporation's compliance program and culture. And there are two. One, compensation structures that promote compliance. And two, use of personal devices and their third-party applications. So I have to assume these are now factors to be evaluated in the overall context of your compliance program. But did you see anything new or different within those two? Or did, did is my assessment not something that you're really seeing as significant? No, I think that in particular the compensation question is interesting because the policies also talk a lot about clawing back compensation that was ill-gotten. I don't think anybody's going to object to that in theory and you can get your head around how that would actually work. You could probably start to describe what would go in the contract clause to be able to claw back a compensation, but that's more like a punitive negative thing. If we're talking about how to incentivize compliance in a more positive way, 
I still think there's a lot of ambiguity around what, how you would actually set an ethics and compliance goal for executive pay. I know we talk about it a lot. I know there's some very good ideas out there. I'm not quite sure how widespread those are. Sometimes I, th I fear that those kind of goals are a bit subjective as opposed to the rather objective act of now we know you committed fraud XVP, so now we're going to try and claw back your retirement account because you got an equity award. That part I get. This other part, I don't know. And then on personal devices, the one thing that is adjacent to the Monaco memo that also seems to be getting a lot of talk, the department is clearly very annoyed at the use of these messaging apps that allow for messages to disappear after a while. That is what Assistant AG Ken Polite said. It is what a different Deputy Assistant AG said just the other day. I think his name was Marshall Miller. But they have now talked a couple of times about this has to stop and you companies need to figure out how to stop it. This is related to, I think, what JP Morgan was fined for last fall or earlier this spring. JP Morgan paid $200 million for its poor governance of messaging apps. Now, very clearly, the rest of Wall Street's big banks are going to be in some sort of group settlement that I'd be surprised if we don't hear about it by the end of the month, but that's in the works. There are ways that employees could try and skirt around a lot of these electronic documents and records and communications that DOJ wants. There's a lot of disappearing apps out there, Snap only being the most popular and well-known. And the DOJ does not like this. And the DOJ is very clearly telling companies, you have to figure out how to stop this. I actually don't know how you would stop it. I think that's a very daunting technical challenge. But that's the other thing that did jump out at me. This clearly is something that they're really irritated by. So on the compensation, I guess I'm a little more comfortable than you with that issue. I've been thinking about that literally since 2007 and was part of a internal company committee that figured out how we were going to do it. It was very subjective, but it was important that we had that because we were under a DPA at the time. So we just created a program. And the concerns and questions I had back then, I think, are some of the same ones you articulated here today. On the third-party messaging apps, here's what struck me as really two things. One, I certainly agree with, I think the DOJ is clearly irritated by this, but they made it the company's problem. They said, here's the issue. It's your problem. You solve it. You deal with it. We don't know how. We don't know what to tell you, but it's your problem. And you got to do it to our satisfaction. And we'll tell you that after you present the evidence to us. That can be tough. And it's going to require companies to actively look at things in ways they probably haven't before. And the burden, once again, is on the company. And so I see this as really just yet another stick in the carrot and stick approach that is putting additional burdens on companies the way it's laid out in this middle. First off, when you said it's difficult or the technical challenge, there's no kind of involved. This is going to be hard to solve. And the most direct ways to solve it, I think, would be very invasive to a lot of people. Now, that does actually happen in, say, the investment advisory world where it is routine practice with financial firms to monitor the phone calls of their sales staff and to record those calls and analyze the voice calls later. And that would include their use of personal cell phones. And suddenly privacy issues get very blurry. 
I'm not even going to speculate how you would do that if you have European staff and how you would do that just even in the United States, where it's assumed that we don't care as much about privacy and companies will crawl all over you. That's still going to be very difficult to do. I don't have a good answer, but really, are we going to wind up monitoring people's phone calls? Are we going to require them to submit to their monthly call records from their personal cell phone? What if they have a disposable phone that they pick up at a convenience store and they use a messaging app and you as a company, you would not necessarily ever find out about any of that. It's going to be really difficult. And yet the department is pissed about this very clearly. The next section, Matt, is on monitors. And we could probably devote an entire podcast to this section, and I would be more than happy to do that with you if, if you were so inclined. But I want to start, there's two di different areas. One is factors that DOJ attorneys are to consider. And the second is the or three parts, section, selection of monitors and then oversight of monitors. And I was really intrigued with the factors, but I was perhaps most intrigued with factor one. And I'll just read that. Sure. Number one, whether the comp corporation voluntarily self-disclosed the underlying misconduct in a manner that satisfies the particular DOJ's components self-disclosure policy. The rest of the factors really deal with the nature and quality of the bad actions and the remedial acts of the company. But this one doesn't seem to me to have anything to do with those. And this is one of the other reasons I think that this is a big stick in the Monica memo and that they are emphasizing in a different way the timeliness of your self-disclosure that we talked about a little bit earlier and probably the quality of it in an evaluation of whether you need a monitor. And I didn't know if, if you had any thoughts on that one, one way or the other. Not specific to the monitors, but I was struck that the way that Deputy AG Monaco said all departments, all Justice Department sections will now to have written policies for voluntary self-disclosure and their expectations. I have to admit, I didn't know that they didn't already have that. Or why would different sections need different types of voluntary disclosure standards? I would have assumed that would be a fairly uniform process or a uniform expectation from national security to environmental to criminal to civil to whatnot. Maybe there are some new nuances in the enforcement realm that I'm not thinking of. But I was struck by that. On the other hand, the good news is they are going to have these written policies. And clearly, the department is talking about this a lot. Once they have these written policies posted, read them. They're going to be there for a reason. And they're talking about this a lot. So I would advise corporate compliance officers to take a good look at that and then think through how would you have a conversation maybe with your board or your senior management about folks we will have to take this to heart and it is going to really have to be an ethical priority for us that we preach the joys of self-disclosure, which is like preaching the joys of whipping yourself with a can of nine tails. But nonetheless, it's like this is going to have to happen. I think Mike Volkoff and his discussions and explanations around why the DOJ antitrust division is simply the division and then there's other parts of the DOJ could go a long way in explaining the differences in each division. But you're absolutely right. Now your decision to self-disclose will be a factor in whether you get a monitor. And you have two, three, four weeks out, got the information, 
You're sitting with it internally. You're having discussions with your general counsel and your CEO and board, and you have to say, oh, and by the way, in addition to the decision to self-disclose, it will impact whether or not we get a monitor five years down the road. So I really do see this as a pretty big, and I think the DOJ is making it very clear they want self-disclosures. They want them quicker, faster. They want documents turned over faster, and they want companies to engage in more punitive remedial action, whether it be a clawback, whether it be a termination of an employee, whether it be a management restructuring or something else. So I guess I've still talked myself into thinking that, although certainly reasoned and well laid out, I think this puts more pressure on compliance and corporations going forward. Tom, there's only one other issue that, since we were talking about monitors, that crops up in my mind that Going back to the repeat offenses, or you are a recidivist offender, and now the Justice Department is going to be looking at you. One thing that I know companies do, and listeners out there, this happens too, is that the DPA ends or the monitor goes away, and promptly the department or your company lays off half the compliance staff, or they restructure and you've gone from being the CCO to an assistant general counsel, and the functions get integrated or who knows what. This happens all the time. And I know that there are sometimes talks about extending a monitor ship. And one of the things that a company might be asked is, are you going to get rid of some of your staff? Are you going to hire, keep these staff on after with it? How will all of those actions look when the recidivist moment comes? And you had a DPA and it expired three years later, and then you laid off half the compliance team. And then two years after that, so really, it's still only five years after the original incident. Now you've got a repeat, and now the Justice Department is going to notice you had a DPA, you had a monitor, and the day that they left after three years, boom, you laid off a bunch of people. That strikes me as that's going to stick out like a sore thumb. And yet, asking the company to keep all of these extra resources on board, that might be a difficult pill for a lot of boards and C-suites and general counsels to swallow. So... Maybe we can talk about that further on another day. But like that's another one of those implications that I think we need to ponder a bit more. Absolutely. And I'm pretty sure we're going to be talking about this memo down the road. Absolutely. Indeed. All right. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to part three of the special five-part series on the FCPA Compliance Report about the Monaco memo. I hope you'll join us tomorrow in our part four, where I visit with Hughes Hubbard partner, Laura Perkins. Laura is a former DOJ prosecutor working in the FCPA unit, so she has some great insights into the prosecutorial mindset and some of the drafting strategies she thinks she sees in the Monica memo. Laura's now a partner at Hughes Hubbard, and she brings a white-collar defense background to this podcast as well. This special five-part podcast series is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.